Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. Today, we're going to be talking about about a brand new film that's airing on PBS on Earth Day, Tuesday, April 22nd. Of course, you know when Earth Day is. It's going to be airing from 9 to 10 p.m. Check your local listings, though. It's called A Fierce Green Fire, and it documents the history of the American environmental movement and We have the filmmaker, Mark, with us today, and we also have one of my sheroes of all time, Lois Gibbs. She uh, is an environmental health advocate, and she was made famous by her leadership during the Love Canal crisis in upstate New York, and we're going to be talking with both of them today, uh, both about Lois's experience, she's so inspirational, and Mark, and and how he made the film, and, and some of the things that you can look forward to when you preview this film on PBS on Earth Day. Let's start with you, Mark. Congratulations on your film, A Fierce screen fire i enjoyed it very much it was awesome um i want to get from your perspective as the filmmaker why you think it's important for people to know the history of the environmental movement well it's the biggest movement the world has ever witnessed and it may be the most critical to our survival um I think ultimately environmentalism is about civilizational transformation i think it's the next step for humanity uh, finding a way to live in sustainable balance with the natural world on which we depend for survival. So I thought it was the biggest story and the most important to tell. And, you know, that's it in a nutshell. You know, what can people who are maybe too young to know any of these stories um, gl- glean from learning from people who went before them in the movement? How does this inspire today's environmentalists, Mark? Well, I think the film would say that there must be a hundred ways to be an environmentalist. You can be an activist like Lois, where you're working with 10,000 people at the grassroots level all over the country. Uh, You can be working at the policy level. You can be working locally. You can be working internationally. You can just get out there and work on save in your backyard, or you can go up to Washington and chain yourself to the White House fence and try and stop the Keystone Pipeline. You know, it's just, there's a lot of lessons in there. And, you know, maybe the biggest lesson of the film is that it needs bottom-up movements forcing the top-down political change. And it really needs both. And the movement's at its best when it's got a healthy grassroots uh, contingent. I couldn't agree with you more. Speaking of grassroots movements, Lois, I've been inspired for so long by your story. Um, And I think one of the things that's great about your experience is that um, your background is something so many, especially women in this country, can relate to. You're a mom. And, you know, you did some incredible things. But I'd love to know what you were like before this Love Canal crisis. Did you think of yourself as an environmentalist? Oh, absolutely not. I I thought of myself as a full-time homemaker and the best mom possible. And I guess today we call it the domestic engineer. (laughs) Um, And I was a very shy, quiet person. You know, even at a PTA meeting, when I had a question, I would ask my friend to to ask the question for me because I was 
so shy. I wouldn't even raise my, my hand at a PTA meeting. So I was a totally different person. And I've really become uh, an environmentalist accidentally, if you will. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I really think that there's something tremendous about that because you certainly got over that shyness. And I'd love for you to describe a little bit about your own personal transformation as a way of maybe inspiring some of you know the moms out there today who know that there are problems in their communities but feel like you feel a little timid a little shy what how did you transform from that person to the person who would take the microphone in front of you know a crowd and step up well it was it was a, a very quick transformation i found i have two children at love canal and both of them were very sick and I thought the system worked. And so I went through the system. I went to the school board to ask them to move my child out of the elementary school, sitting next to the dump site and the playground over the top of the dump. And the school board said, no, we're not going to do that. If we do that for you, we have to do that with all 407 children. And I'm like, yeah, exactly. All 407 <laughs> children should be evacuated. Um, and, then, and then I went to the health department and said, you know, these kids, my kids are sick and there's 20,000 tons of chemicals, I think it's connected, and they said, prove it. I'm like, hmm. prove what? I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a housewife. I'm a, I have a high school education. I can't prove it. And every door I went to was slammed in my face, and that's what really sort of was the transitional moment for me that no one is going to take care of Lois Gibbs, her family, and her neighbors, except for Lois Gibbs, her family, and her neighbors. And I was actually in shock. It was really sort of the American dream bubble. If you play by the rules and you pay your taxes and you do this, everything will be fine and, and you know, they'll come rescue you if you have a problem. And the realization that that's just not true. And so I went out. And, and I have to say for all those moms out there and dads as well, it's not an easy transformation. I mean, I remember going to that first door to knock on that first door to say, is your kid sick too? I mean, just very timid and, and my knees were knocking. And these are my neighbors. I like, I, I don't, I, today I don't even know what I was afraid of, but I was scared to death to talk to strangers. But what was interesting, and I think a lesson we all can take away from that first trans, transitional kind of moment for me is when I knocked on one of the doors, this lady said, one of my neighbors said very clearly, Lois, I'm so glad you came. I've been waiting for somebody to tell me what to do. Mm. But, you know, you hear a lot about apathy and people, you know, don't care. I, I think they do care, but they don't know what to do. And I said, I don't know what to do either, but let's get together and figure it out. And that was the formation of our organization, was just knocking on doors and talking to people. And then I saw that I wasn't crazy, that it wasn't just my family, <laughs> and that lots of people were sick as well. And it was, it was really a, a, a moment in my life that I will never forget. That woman, I could can, I can picture her face today. <laughs> <laughs> just being receptive and happy that, that somebody would take the lead, even if it was reluctantly uh, on this issue. And just for those who, who don't know the story of Love Canal, what was it that your children's school and your homes were built on top of? What exactly was under that ground? There was an old dump site um, that contained 20,000 tons of chemicals, and it was a, a mixture of Manhattan Project, pesticides, chemical warfare stuff. I mean, literally everything they dumped Ew. between the 40s and the 50s. And then they just covered it up with dirt because that's how they used to do it in the day. And over time, the chemicals leaked out of the dump 
into the neighborhood. And so people actually, their homes were contaminated with these chemicals evaporating into their basements. And in the winter, it was even worse because the air was circulating. And so the health effects at Love Canal were pretty remarkable. We had 56% of our children born with birth defects. Mm. Uh, women who were unable to carry babies full term, uh, stillborn babies. I mean, it was really, when you think about it, it was really the canary in the mine. Most of the problems at Love Canal were really uh, expressed through various types of pregnancy problems and, and, and childbirth. And, you know, we started to raise the flag around that. But since then, there's just been thousands of sites very similar to Love Canal. We actually were not the worst site in the country. Really? Um, we were just the most publicly known site. And that was wow. because of what Mark, Mark was saying earlier, you know, people getting together and speaking out and, and really raising the awareness nationwide and globally, actually. Mark, I would love for you to tell our listeners about some of the people that you interviewed for this movie or for this movie. Um, you know, tell us who they were, maybe give us a, a few of them who inspired you the most. And the other thing I'm wondering is as you were doing these interviews, as you were talking with these tremendous leaders in the environmental movement, what were some of the common traits that you found uh, amongst them? Well, Lois, really is phenomenal. She's, I think, one of the, the most important leaders of the environmental movement. And when Love Canal was over, she didn't go back to being a housewife. She moved to Washington and she started a group to help all the other Lois's. And now, 35 years later, she's still at it. And she's probably worked with 10,000 people by now. And, you know, this is real grassroots work all over the country where they're fighting all sorts of problems in their own backyard. And I was just looking over her latest newsletter and just struck by how many different issues she's fighting on. Um, but Paul Watson uh, was an early Greenpeace founder. Uh, he, it was, they went out to uh, stop the Russian whalers and they got out in Zodiacs and put themselves between the harpoons and the whales and tried to stop them. And then Paul's idea was to then go help the baby fur seals in Newfoundland and stop that slaughter. And, you know, when he couldn't stop it any other way, he chained himself to a pile of pelts and they, the sealing ship, you know, raised them up and dunked them in the water. And then when they were ordered to bring them on board, you know, the sealers kicked and spat on him. And, you know, and he went on and founded uh, Sea Shepherd. And he's... You know, he went and ran pirate whalers and cleared the Atlantic Ocean of pirate whalers and then took on whaling nations. Uh, there's Martin Litton, who at 82 is still thundering about how you got to have hatred in your heart, you know. Um, <laughs> he says, let's not be nice. Uh, my attitude was always, you know, fight really hard, as hard as you can. And then there's very polite people like Tom Lovejoy, who's a conservation biologist, one of the most eminent, who uh, he was one of the people in the forefront of exploring what ecology meant and the connections. And he set up a project in the Amazon where they sort of studied the way the forest unravels by cutting down and leaving pieces of it. And there's Amy Lovins, who's the nerd of the movement, uh, the genius, <laughs> and has been working on solutions and 
likes to call himself a think-and-do tank. And uh, Bill McKibben, who started out simply writing about climate change, he wrote the first popular book about it. And then when that wasn't enough, he went on and he found it, first Step It Up, and then that became 350.org. And he's mm-hmm. been phenomenal. He founded it with six students from Middlebury College, and it's grown and grown and grown. And now there's local 350s all over the world. And where I am today in North Carolina, the students are going up and chaining themselves to the White House fence. You know, it just goes on and on like that. And, you know, all of these people, what I found fascinating was that they they come from different places, different backgrounds, different educational experiences. Did you get a sense of some common characteristics or traits in their their beings that, that, you know, were notable or... Were they just different people going at it in different ways? What, what did you observe in terms of looking at them as a group? Well, they all step forward somehow. And that might be coming from different places. It might be coming from a more intellectual place, or it might be that they're fence line to the problem and that they have no choice but to fight for their lives and their homes and their children. But, um, you know, they're the ones who step forward. I would mm-hmm. say, and um, there's tremendous variety within that, and uh, this is not an easy battle. It's, uh, these are, you know, often they're 10-year struggles, and they uh, take tremendous dedication, and I think you can sort of see how they sorted themselves out according to how dogged and determined they were. Mm-hmm. Lois, I have a question for you. You know, when you look back on how you ended up in a house that was built on top of all of these chemicals in Love Canal, what do you think was the root cause of that even being a possibility? I mean, was it ignorance on the part of scientists that were involved? Was it arrogance on the part of government and the corporate, you know, polluters? Was it malice? What what led to that to begin with? How could that have ever happened? Well, I think it was a little bit of each. I think it was ignorance on part of this of the city of Niagara Falls, um, believing Occidental Petroleum, who was the responsible party in this case, that um, there was no harm building a school there, and there would be no harm if the chemicals leak because they're not going to leak because we have the best clay possible. I think it was a combination of all of that, and I, but I. But I, and, and it's happening today, by the way. I mean, there, there are still homes. Most of them are low-income homes mm-hmm. that are being built on these old sites. So it's not like Love Canal was 35 years ago and it's not happening and we've learned our lesson. Um, now it's a matter, and it was then too, a matter of economics. And, you know, the land was cheap. They gave, the city got it for $1. And they thought, oh, gee, well, we can build a school and build all these homes around it. And where I'm working in um, Georgia, it was the same sort of thing. You know, we, we have this cheap land. We can redevelop it, and we can put low-wealth uh, people of color, African-Americans, in this um, subsidized housing. And it's like, what? Are you crazy? Um, mm. the, the company itself was actually found guilty of negligence uh, by the New York 
state supreme court. So, so legally, they knew what was going on. They knew what was likely to happen. And what they did is try to transfer their liability to the city of Niagara Falls, which obviously didn't work. But, it, you know, the, the, there, was, there was malice there, too, because people were reporting. People were saying to the city of Niagara Falls and the, and the city health department, when we put our children out on the playground, they get burns on their hands. Mm. Or often, Love Canal would actually, it, they're real barrels. And if you can imagine a 55-gallon barrel, they would collapse. They would rust out beneath the surface, and they would collapse, and you would have a hole, a perfectly circle, <laughs> like oh. the top of a barrel. And the children would play in this gunk. And, you know, it's sort of like the Beverly Hillbillies, which the today's generation probably doesn't know either. But <laughs> <laughs> I know that show. <laughs> yeah, and they would play in this stuff, and the school board knew about it, and what they would do is they would go out there, and they would just cover it with dirt. So, so that was just, I mean, they knew there was a problem. They would bathe the children, and they would pay the parents for the clothing that they would not send home with the children. They would provide new clothing for the children and send them home in a new clothing. So this was going on for a long time, and people did not know what this was all about. They really did not understand it, and yet the authorities did understand it, and they allowed it to continue. And they allowed it to continue because it cost millions and millions of dollars to build a new school, to evacuate our homes, which is what eventually happened. 900 families were evacuated. And, you know, the dollars always trumped public health and protection of, of young children. I mean, the school had over 400 children in it. You know, Lois, it's so discouraging for me to hear you say that this is still happening, and I know it is. Um, but, you know, organizations like yours help communities organize, and we'll talk about how you do that in a little bit. But, you know, it's almost as though we're playing environmental justice whack-a-mole. Like when somebody, you know, indicates a problem, then we go and we, you know, we fight it. But what needs to happen on a more societal level or or you know, public policy level to ensure this doesn't happen anymore. What needs to be done? Yeah, there needs to be much better regulations and laws about where you can put buildings, where you can put housing, where you can put public schools. I mean, they build public schools on dump sites, on brownfields, they call them, for the, because the land is so cheap. And we really need laws that say, no, you can't do this. And, and, and they do these things, they call them risk assessments. So how, how long will the children be exposed to the chemicals? And what is the lifetime exposure? And what will that do? You know, risk assessments means there's a risk there. Why would yeah. you want to build a school, regardless of what the risk level is, in a place where we're putting children at risk or, you know, regular families? And we really need to say when it involves human health, when it involves residents, when it involves schools, and certainly when it involves low-wealth communities, mm-hmm. we do not do this. This is just wrong. And, and we've been working actually for years at the state level and the federal level around schools in particular, and EPA did finally uh, release some uh, guidance on how to assess a site to build a school so that the children are protected and, and really sort of encourages school boards not to build them near toxic sites or old brownfield sites or uh, industrial parks or near um, high traffic areas. But there's, but there's no real hard law. And, and, and it really, this, the societal problem comes when you are a low-wealth community and you have the opportunity to move into a new home that may pose a risk versus the old home, which has violence and crime and drugs mm-hmm. and all of these other things. 
it, it puts a parent in a very awkward position because, you know, they may get cancer if they live here, but they're definitely going to get in trouble if they live over there. Yeah. And, 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 and that's, that's how our society is working now. We don't have a sense of if you're low wealth, you still matter because yes. you do matter, you know? Absolutely. Well, and you know, I think back to earlier this year when the chemicals spilled in, in West Virginia, and one of the things that came out was that uh, the community leaders, the public officials, had no idea that there were chemicals so close to the water that ended up, you know, being their their drinking water source. Um, th- there was no inventory, and so the the elected officials either because they weren't curious about it or because there was no framework for this, didn't know what some of the public health threats were in their own communities. I mean, besides the fact that there was no regulation to, you know, keep uh, chemicals that were stored like they were so close to a water source, that you know, that was absent. They also had no idea uh, that these were even there. So I, I just feel like, you know, we really need to get on top of this. Mark, when you were making the film, you know, did you get the sense that the American environmental movement had really come a long way? Or were you more inclined to think that we are still fighting the same old battles? Well, when you go back historically and you look at the smog over New York or Los Angeles, <clears throat> you can't help but feel that we've come a long way. We really cleared up a lot of visible smog, air pollution. By the same token, drinking water has been cleaned up and they're no longer dumping sewage untreated into rivers everywhere around the country. And uh, one of the things that Lois did was clog up all the toilets. Uh, And by that, she meant they stopped every new toxic waste dump in the country uh, for, I don't know, 20, 30 years. They managed to really just stop any new toxic uh, landfills. And um, more recently, the Sierra Club has uh, run something that they call Beyond Coal, and they managed to stop 167 out of 170 new coal-fired power plants that were proposed during the Bush-Cheney administration and now they're going back and they're um, shutting down old coal-fired power plants all over the country. And so there's a lot of progress on a lot of fronts. They got the lead out. They got DDT banned. You know, there's just a lot of progress. But especially when it comes to chemicals, it's insidious what happens with chemicals because no sooner do they ban something than the chemical industry comes up with new stuff and nobody knows, nobody mm-hmm. tests it. It's just, just, it's like, as in so many environmental things, it's on the one hand and then on the other hand. And yeah. it's the sorcerer's apprentice, you turn around and, and it's grown bigger and bigger and bigger. Absolutely. Well, we're going to take a quick commercial breaks, break, but when we come back, folks, there's much more Go Green Radio right after this. News. News. 
Your opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Just in case you've only just now tuned in, no worry, we'll catch you up. We are talking today with Mark Kitchell, who's just made a brand new film called A Fierce Green Fire. And it's a great film. It's going to be airing on PBS on Earth Day, Tuesday, April 22nd from 9 to 10 p.m. But check your local listings on your PBS channel so that you make sure you don't miss it. It's called A Fierce Green Fire. And we're also talking with Lois Gibbs, who is featured in his film, one of my favorite environmental sheroes of all time. And uh, so we are having a great discussion both about the film and about some of the things that Lois learned and can share her wisdom and experience with other folks who might be finding some environmental health hazards in their own community. And I'm just thrilled to have them both on. Um, Lois, I want to talk to you a little bit about what you learned in terms of what caused your ultimate victory in Love Canal. Do you think that it was the result of bringing credible science and the the scientific report that you had uh, commissioned to study what was going on with the health effects of the chemicals that your homes and schools were built on top of? Or do you think that your victory was more the result of putting strong political pressure on the government? Very good question, and 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 most people believe that it's the the science that will set us free, the magic fact that somebody say, "Oh my goodness, we 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 need to do this." And at Love Canal, it was really it was a bit devastating because we did do uh, a number of scientific studies, hard science, good science. Um, the health department from the state of New York came in and affirmed that what we found was in fact true, and just talking about the 56% birth defect rate. But what they did is they said, yes, we found that 56% of the children at Love Canal were born with birth defects. And we agree with the homeowners that it was double rows of teeth, extra fingers, extra toes, mentally retarded. But we do not believe that it's related to Love Canal. They did not believe it was related to 20,000 tons of chemicals in the center of our community. What they said is we believe it's related to a random clustering of genetically defected people. Now, anybody who takes 
yes, you know, Sats knows that that's, that is a possibility. Likely, no, but it mm-hmm. is a possibility. And so that's when we really realize that this is not about proving your case. It is about providing the data to legitimize your case. That's not to say the data is not important. It most certainly is. But it's a political fight. And so we then turned around and everything we did was political. We went after the governor of New York State. We went after the president of the United States, which was Jimmy Carter at the time, and put political pressure on them to give us what they wanted. And in fact, if you were to look at the written history of why they relocated all of the families that left Canal, you will see almost no reference to health. It's all related to mental anguish and all of these other bizarre reasons why they did what they should have done. But it had nothing to do with the fact that we were all very sick, and especially our young children. So, and, and that's the advice we give to people today. It's like, you need the facts. You need the science. It's incredibly important. But that's not going to set you free. You need to really create that political pressure. You know, and we see that in climate change. There's 75% of the studies says we have a problem. There is a climate crisis going on. 3% of the studies says there is not a crisis. And, of course, all of the opponents that are the climate deniers latch on to those 3% studies as opposed to the 78, 75% studies. And, and so the studies are out there, but, but you really need to create the political pressure for the Keystone Pipeline and so many other things out there. I see. And and I know that that's something that your organization um, helps people get ready for. A political fight is intimidating. I mean, it is not, unless you are, you know, geared up as the kind of person who can storm the castle, thinking in terms of, you know, I'm just this everyday person and I've got to fight these, you know, uh, well-funded politicians is intimidating. What are some of the ways that your organization helps uh, steal the spines of those that you help? Well, what we do is we really help them figure out how to do it based on their culture. So, so you know, who is the one who can give you what you want, and then how do you go about doing it? And, and we, we really talk about people stepping outside your comfort zone, and, and that's really what it's about. It's about having the courage to carry a sign or, you know, for the more conservative people, having the courage to do a walk of concern with your religious leaders. You don't always have to get arrested. You don't always have to chain yourself to some fence. There are so many other ways to really talk about your issue and get public support. And it's really about getting public support. So we do that kind of training. It's like, what can you do? And we did one in, in uh, Georgia that was really interesting because the folks there said, you know, we, did, we can't do this where African-American racism is alive and well uh, in Georgia. And we said, well, what can you do? And what they ended up doing was going to a public hearing, having one of their religious leaders go to the podium. And when he reached the podium, they all stood up and sang a Bible hymn. This is the mm. Bible belt. And so 250 people stood up. Well, in the South, when you sing a Bible hymn, everybody must say, stand up. So the opponents stood up, the government stood up, everybody stood up and sang this Bible hymn. And people were so empowered by that. So really talking about how can you make a statement in a comfort zone that's a little outside your normal comfort zone and, and do it 
together because if you're standing up all by yourself, you become a target. But if you have an organized voice and an organized effort in lots of ways for people to play, depending on where their comfort zone is, that you can really create that political pressure. Well, I want everybody who's listening to know where to find you, Lois, and your organization is called the Center for Health, Environment, and Justice, and the website is chej.org. And so if you are a listener and you feel like, you know, there's something going on in your community where you could uh, really benefit from these kinds of trainings and this kind of support, that's where you go, chej.org. You know, Mark, speaking of political issues, um, your film did a great job of depicting the fact that there was a point in time when both Democrats and Republicans at the highest level of our nation's leadership created good environmental public policy. Um, Do you feel hopeful that that kind of atmosphere could be recreated and that this could be a bipartisan issue in America again? Or do you feel like, you know, that that we're really going to have to go to non-politicians and and the leadership is going to come from the grassroots, not the politicians, just due to corporate influence these days? Well, I think that bipartisan consensus came out of Earth Day when 20 million people, the largest demonstration ever, turned out. And that's really an argument for the bottom-up pressure forcing people like Nixon uh, to, to, to really act. And that was, that sort of ushered in a golden age of environmental laws that lasted until the first oil, energy, Arab embargo crisis. <laughs> and the honeymoon was probably over by 73, 4, 5. They pushed through a bunch of laws, you know, Clean Air, Clean Water, Endangered Species Act. Um, the last thing to get through was Superfund, and Lois was the mother of Superfund, which was a toxic cleanup uh, bill, and it made it through in a lame duck Congress as Carter was giving way to Reagan, and then a lot of things stopped, and it was a rearguard action from that point on. But that's the great divide in losing the bipartisan, is the uh, election of Reagan. Um, and we haven't found our way back to that bipartisan consensus, and I'd, I'd like to say that we will, but it's hard to know. What do you think is keeping us from that? I mean, you know, it's been a while since Reagan was in office. Do you think it's the influence of corporate finance in, you know, the campaign finance uh, world, or do you think there's something else? Well, these are powerful interests. Oil and coal are powerful interests, and they've been spending their money liberally, and they've got a lot of people behind them. You know, if we get to climate change, let's start out by saying that it's probably the most difficult issue that humanity has ever faced. And it's got lots of reasons why it's difficult, because it's off in the future, because it's invisible, because it goes up against you know, the very basis of our civilization, you know, all that cheap energy. Uh, So there's a lot of reasons why. And, you know, the the progression of the environmental movement is, you know, they solve the easy stuff first. They stop some dams and save some swamps. And then, you know, with Lois and environmental justice movements, they've taken on a lot of nasty chemicals and the... We made some real progress there, but it keeps on getting up to the level to where it's now. 
mostly about global scale resource issues and crises. And uh, mm-hmm. so, there's no more low hanging fruit. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. And in you fact, know, I think where it's all headed is a civilizational transformation that's got at least a thousand parts to it, mm-hmm. and it's personal agency and it's policy and law and it's you know coming up with different ways of living and the way we make things, the way we think about ourselves in relation to the natural world. You know, it's a really I think this is as big as the industrial revolution, and I think it's the work of two hundred years. I think you're probably right, Mark, and I think it starts with something that Lois just uh, brings to life in everything that she does, and that is this responsibility that we have to the next generation, or responsibility to the children who are so vulnerable uh, to environmental damage, environmental pollution. And, you know, one of the things that I'm sure a lot of our listeners out there who are millennials and can't imagine life before Twitter are amazed at with your story, Lois, is that you were able to so effectively gain the public's attention, the media's attention, heck, the White House's attention without social media. And I would love for you to share some of the lessons you learned about how to get your message across, things that you learned back in 1978 that are still true today. Even if you've got social media, that doesn't mean you've got everybody's attention. How do you do it? Yeah, it's it's real. It's, it's actually harder today because there's so much noise mm-hmm. uh, than it was before. But but we did it by being creative, by being visual. So you know, often I see people like releasing a new report, and they have a lot of white men standing in front of the room and talking about it, and it's like boring. Um, <laughs> and really talking about how do you how do you really visually to show the problem. And so we used a lot of our women, our families, where moms would stand there holding their child and saying, you know, what was wrong. But but I think most importantly, because it's not just about the media, it's about the target. So they would say, you know, Governor Carey is responsible for my child's birth defect. And then the media would run to Governor Carey's office and say, do you take responsibility for this? And what you do is you get this dialogue between the community uh, victim, if you will, and the government, and it puts pressure on the government. Um, but we did we did hostage holding, which I don't suggest anybody ever do. Um, <laughs> I but, saw that in the film. Can you describe that moment for us? Because that was awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was it was that we were at our last straw, and they told us we weren't going to get evacuated. We couldn't. Our schools were closed. We we weren't supposed to get pregnant. If we were, we're going to get evacuated. There was a whole list of things we weren't supposed to do, but it was safe at Love Canal. And they told us about chromosome damage, which meant what you just said, um, our children were likely to have genetic damage as a result of exposure. And that was the, that was the last straw. So, so as a good leader, if everybody is angry and coming to your front yard and wants, wants to yell at somebody, and you're the leader, you're going to get yelled at. And it's like, yeah, no. So I brought these two EPA officials there so they could be the target for the anger of the residents. And when they came, the people said, you know what, if it's so safe to live here, you guys live here. And they put them in our abandoned house we were using as an office and surrounded the house with people and sat down and would not let them leave. (laughs) And and what that did is that was the first U.S. domestic hostage holding. And so it got on every news. But But the strategy that was actually brilliant was not necessarily the hostage holding, but giving the White House an ultimatum 
that if they didn't do something Wednesday by noon, we would make the hostage holding look like a Sesame Street picnic. What that did, and as it relates to the media, is they started doing a countdown, seven to eight hours till Wednesday at noon, 48 hours till Wednesday at noon. What are the homeowners going to do? And this, this, this countdown and sort of, it, and it was national, it wasn't just in the local Western New York news, that put so much pressure on Jimmy Carter that he had to give us what we wanted because every interview we did was a human interest story. Media loves human interest story. The public loves human interest story. So we would have these moms just sitting with the journalists and talking about these stories. And, and ultimately, Wednesday at noon, they agreed to evacuate everybody, our ultimatum work. But, but it wasn't just the hostage holding or whatever the event was. In that case, it was hostage holding. <laughs> it was creating the momentum and the media attention and then the media hanging on to it and making it bigger than life. And that, that really created that pressure. And, and saying Jimmy Carter. So it wasn't like we want EPA to do something. It was Jimmy Carter. We want President Carter to do something that also created that pressure. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's what we try to, you know, talk to folks about is just don't say you want the State Department of Environmental whatever to do this. Who, who runs that State Department? Mm-hmm. You know, use a name, use a face. People can identify with names and faces. People can identify with City Hall. It's a building. It's brick. They don't get it. Mm-hmm. Um, but they do know who the mayor is, and they know where he goes for his fish fry on Friday, and they know somebody who goes to church with him. And, and it just changes the whole context of both the media and the way people interact in, in the strategies. Well, and it holds people accountable to do their job as a public servant. Uh, makes perfect sense. You know, speaking of individuals, uh, Mark, one of the things that impressed me about some of the individuals in the film was the personal sacrifice that so many of the leaders, uh, you know, in the environmental movement undertook in the name of their case. Like, for instance, David Brower um, was ousted from the Sierra Club, and he was the one that helped to make them into such a powerful organization. You mentioned Paul Watson. He was ousted from Greenpeace, even though he had helped to make that organization so incredibly prominent and well-known. And then, of course, Chico Mendez, who succeeded in creating reserves in the Amazon, but then was assassinated for it. What do you hope that viewers will take from the example of some of these environmental leaders who sacrificed so much and so personally? Well, the dedication of the death, you know, you know, all these fights tend to be against enormous odds, and they take a long time. Many of them take a decade or more, and you have to really be in it for the long haul. And um, to see that kind of dedication and sacrifice, uh, you know, I think there's a quality of character that you just, you know, you decide that this is the most important battle going on uh, in our in our lifetimes, and you throw yourself into it. And you know, I've seen it again and again. <clears throat> Excuse my foggy voice. <laughs> um, you know, I don't want you know, I don't want people to go out and take hostages or 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 get assassinated for this. But there's a, there's a certain amount of putting your body on the line. And what makes it worth it? I mean, you know, how how can people measure the, the value of that sacrifice against the rewards? I, 
you know, I hope that young people will get a sense that this is the most important thing going on now, that this mm-hmm. is the battle of their lifetimes, that if we don't solve this, it's, it's kind of game over. And it's not a simple thing where you, you know, go out and demonstrate once and, you, and you're done. That mm-hmm. it's something where you really have to bring uh, kind of an awareness. There's an awakening that happens at the beginning of anybody's involvement where they begin to understand how everything is connected. And, uh, and then they see that they have to do something about it. And, uh, you know, it's not all that many people. And yeah, everybody loves to bring out uh, the famous martyr me quote about, you know, a small bunch of people who can change things. Mm-hmm. And and it's really true. I've seen over and over again in, in these movements how there's a nucleus of people and they they really can have an enormous impact. And when you see that, it, it's, I think, really exciting and inspiring. Let me ask you, Lois, because you can actually uh, tell us from your own experience, what what was the return on your investment? What was that gratifying moment for you um, when you won your first victory? What did it feel like? And, and maybe this will serve as some encouragement for some of our young listeners who've never been in the battles fray before to be willing to get into it. Well, I, the immediate gratification was I was out. <laughs> I could get my family into some safe place. But but I think the real gratification comes to the the entire globe. I mean, we had people from all over the world who came to Love Canal awoke to the fact that chemicals in our environment, in our in our personal care products, and in so many things, can create human health problems. And and there have been laws and there have been things taken off the market and there has been a just a huge understanding now about well gee, you know, it's not just the smog, it's 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 everything else in your environment could create a problem if you're not a careful consumer, if you're not a government regulator. And because before Love Canal, the only standards they had for human health was workplace standards, which were mm-hmm. um, governed by OSHA. Now people actually read the back of the label of something they're purchasing, or they're they're purchasing carpet without PVC backing and glue, and you know they're looking at their home and they're checking the zip code and the EPA database to say you know where is a safe thing. So it woke the nation to, and I think that's the most gratifying to the fact that chemicals, even small levels of chemicals, in our environment can create a problem, and we all need to deal with that in some way, both in our purchasing, in our policies, in our manufacturing, uh, and we really need to, to get our arms around this. And, and I think it has made a huge change, and we've just seen it nationwide where you know, there, there didn't used to be organics in most supermarkets, and right. now almost every supermarket has a huge organic, and you go to, you know, Home Depot or one of these you know, hardware stores, and you could buy carpet with or without chemicals. And and, and we so have people like you to it. thank for that. Yeah, <laughs> because I mean, you the fact really that you could change that. Well, and I want to thank you. I'm so glad that I'm getting you the chance to do this, to thank you for what you've done and your legacy, Lois, and to thank you, Mark, for this tremendous film. I hope all of our listeners will get out on PBS on Earth Day and check it out. It's called A Fierce Green Fire. 
don't miss it. Um, and it's really, really great. If you miss it on Earth Day, Google A Fierce Green Fire and you can find other ways to get a hold of the film. Folks, we're going to be here same place, same time next week. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.